Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is panpsychism? Do stars have consciousness? Is everything around us aware? Hello and welcome to the 725th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on ON 1240 Radio and our 10th year on the air, coincidentally. I'm Ben, and those maybe not-so-far-fetched questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal and father, Paul. And uh, today we bring you a first-time guest on a far-out subject, and we welcome your calls today. Numbers are 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, and uh, 401-766-1240 locally or from faraway planets. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why they would use the local number for that, but uh, continuing... Yeah, it's a small universe. Remember? That is true. Uh, uh, it's a small world, after all, or a small universe, after all. And we will uh, take your emails as well during the show. That's paul at behindtheparanormal.com for emails. Dr. Gregory L. Matloff is Emeritus Associate and Adjunct Associate Professor of Physics at New York City's College, uh, the New York City College of Technology. Along with coordinating the astronomy program there, Dr. Matloff has consulted for the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, is a fellow of the British Interplanetary Society, a Hayden Associate at the American Museum of Natural History, and is a corresponding member of the International Academy of Astronautics. NASA has used his pioneering research in solar sail technology and plans for extrasolar probes and in considering the technologies to divert those uh, pesky Earth-threatening asteroids. Uh, there's a great deal more, but Dr. Matloff is the author of a number of books, which we'll talk about later, but if we don't get to him, we're going to be burning up the show. His website gregmatloff.com, M-A-T-L-O-F-F, gregmatloff.com. So, Dr. Greg Matloff, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. It is very nice to be here. Oh, well, it's nice to have you. So let's s- let's start with a, with a with a re- seemingly simple question, but not so simple. What is panpsychism? Okay, panpsychism has started out as a philosophical approach to the hard problem of consciousness. Basically, what is it? We have no definition that is universal that all of the so-called experts in the field can agree on. <clears throat> but there are two basic approaches. One approach is epiphenomenalism. What epiphenomenalism says is as you have a network, perhaps of neurons, and it gets more and more complex, all of a sudden, like magic, self-awareness jumps out of it. And, okay, that's an approach. A lot of the AI people, the artificial intelligence people like that one, but there's an alternative approach. What the alternative approach says is that there is a field of proto-consciousness in the universe that all matter taps into. And, of course, if you have enough interconnections of matter, consciousness, a conscious self-aware organism can grow out of this. And I found myself completely by accident becoming a proponent for panpsychism, which I didn't expect to do. Hmm. And I can, if you like, I can tell you a bit about it. <clears throat> I... Before I did early retirement from my college at the City University and became an adjunct, I coordinated the astronomy program. And one day, talking about uh, astrophysics, a student, a liberal arts student in my Astronomy 2 class, sat up and said, dark matter is bunk. Now, dark (laughs) matter is something that's very mysterious. Supposedly, two-thirds of the universe we can't detect no experimental observation over 80 years have been able to detect this, but yet it seems to be necessary to explain motions of things far out in space. And what he said was very interesting, and it stuck with me for a long time. What he said is, look, in 1905, physics was in a similar problem to astrophysics today. There were all types of, of approaches, and basically Einstein changed the paradigm and pushed them all aside, and we have relativity that replaced Newtonian physics, Newtonian mechanics at least. And that stuck in my mind. Second thing that stuck in my mind is I had an early mentor. His name is is Harris Walker, Evan Harris Walker. He was one of the very first physicists to start looking into the quantum theories of consciousness. 
In fact, he was one of the people who was embarrassed by the famous Uri Geller, great, amazing Randy affair. Hmm. And what happened with Harris was I, I really worked with him in interstellar travel work, uh, but I got very interested in his consciousness studies, and that was in the back of my mind. So another input to this is in early 1990s, I was asked to consult on a science fiction novel by a guy whose name you might be familiar with, Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> ah, yes. Second, Second man to walk man, on the moon. Right. He was doing a novel with John Barnes called Encounter with Tiber, and he wanted me to be his one of his many unpaid scientific consultants. Of course, you don't say no to Buzz. No. So I, was, I did this, I worked for him, and the starships were easy. And then he said, here's something a little more challenging. When you, were, when you did your Ph.D. work, you did a lot of work in planetary atmospheres. I need, for plot reasons, a planet, a giant planet like Jupiter that can live at the distance of its star that the Earth is from a sun-like star. And like everybody else in planetology, I said, it's impossible that atmosphere will evaporate. And he said, find an equation, prove it one way or the other. So I found the equation, and I proved it, and he was absolutely right. And I didn't have the courage, though, at the time to publish it, because um, I was an adjunct, I was a consultant, and I couldn't stand up to the scientific establishment. I just didn't feel strong enough. Two years, two, one or two years after that, people started discovering hot Jupiters very close to their stars, and they felt like an idiot. And I promised myself, if ever I have the chance to publish something, if it's going to change the paradigm, I have to take the risk. So after dealing with my students, I had all this in the background, I was asked to participate in a symposium in London at the British Interplanetary Society's headquarters. Uh, it was a retrospective about a guy named Olaf Stapledon, who's probably one of the most cited science fiction writers, at least by scientists. He predicted so many things technologically. He wrote his masterwork called Star Maker, was written in 1937, published in 1937. And usually, you know, in my writing and my research, I would talk about space habitats. I talk about interstellar travel, the search for extraterrestrials, all that stuff. I said, no, I want to look at this guy's core metaphysics and see if it means something. And his core metaphysics said the universe has a consciousness that's developing and a fraction of stellar motion is volitional. In other words, stars can decide to alter their motion, at least to a certain extent. Astronomers might also, another word that he didn't use, astronomers might, is that the universe to a certain extent is self-organizing. So I said, okay, if stars are going to be conscious, where does it come from? And I realized, I looked at Walker's theory, which said you need neurons. Stars don't have neurons. Then I looked at the theory of Lynn Margolis, started it, and Roger, Sir Roger Penrose, Stuart Hammeroff, tubulins. Well, our brains and all cells have tubulins. I'm pretty sure stars don't. But stars do have molecules, at least some stars do. <clears throat> so I found a, some of the, the number of people have basically speculated that proto-consciousness comes in from fluctuations in the universal vacuum. And these affect the atomic bonds inside all molecules, including water. So they, basically the universe talks to everything at the molecular level. So I said, okay, if that is true, and if Stapleton is correct, stars with molecules have to move differently than stars that are hotter and don't have molecules. So I decided I'd better do some research. And I, come with, I would have been very content to basically write the paper and say, sorry, Olaf, no cigar, but a good try. <laughs> but what I found blew my mind. I didn't go to a library. I didn't go to a research institu institution. I went to Google, and I typed in anomalous stellar motion. And what popped out was something called Parengo's discontinuity. I learned Pavel Parengo was a Russian astronomer during the Soviet period, and he was a very clever man. 
he discovered something that he knew was going to get him into trouble. And he did not want to go to the gulag because he knew what he was dealing with. So before, around the time he was publishing his astronomy work, he wrote a mathematical trustee, a very complex book, and he dedicated it to the most highly evolved human of all times, a guy named Yosef Stalin. <laughs> so Pavel was safe. He wasn't going anywhere. And what he demonstrated is that stars cooler, redder, less massive stars, including the sun, move a bit slower. I'm sorry, move a bit faster around the center of the galaxy than other stars. And he did this for stars in our neighborhood. And of course, I had to check that. So I found um, two excellent sources of more recent information, one being a book called Allen's Astrophysical Quantities, and then a paper by a French scientist, J.J., I think is his initials, Binet, and other people who had evaluated motions of stars out to about 260 light years from the Hipparchos European Space Observatory. And I plotted this information together, and it blew my mind, because there was the discontinuity, and where does it occur? Almost exactly at the point where molecules come in. So I immediately said, I've got to publish this. So, of course, it was delivered at the symposium. I then wrote it up, and I had to fight to get it into the journal because there were some very materialistic people who were very angry about it going in in the first place. Oh, yes. And the, and the fact that I was talking about how might a star move, and I said the, the basic way, you know, it might control its motion is to put out a unidirectional jet of material, and then it would move basically by the rocket principle, and yeah. Some star, young stars do that. But I said maybe it could also be a very, very weak parakinetic force, telekinetic force. And the reason I said that is I knew what Harris, Harris Walker had been through. And I know people on both sides of the Uri Geller controversy, and I consider them all honest people. Four physicists, Harris who no longer is with us, Hal Putoff, uh, Jack Safadi and Edgar Mitchell, who walked on the moon, mm -hmm. all looked at the original data and said Uri Geller could not possibly have been cheating on the original screening uh, tests. But, of course, Uri Geller took his great scores on the Stanford Research Institute CIA-sponsored test and parlayed it into a great career bending spoons on the lecture circuit and on television, mm -hmm. or bending forks. I think it was forks, not spoons. So I then spoke to a guy, uh, a retired editor from Time Life magazine, I forget his name, but he had arranged the lecture with the amazing Randy came in, watched what was going on, and then was able to duplicate the same feat as, as a magician. So I'm sort of stuck in the middle. I can look at three hypotheses. One, Uri Geller is... It, it is and was an extraordinary psychic. That's okay. That's a possibility. The second one is he's a magician who is so good that he's able to pull the wall over the scientific community completely and really take their double-blind tests and make them look ridiculous. And the third possibility is he's a little bit of both. He has a bit of psychic ability, and then he decided... I'm going, I'm going to also exploit this and maybe in any way I can to make some money. And he made a great deal of money. So those are the three possibilities. And what I tried to lay open to the scientific community is to say, you know, I don't have any stake in this one way or another. I don't need it to support this theory, which other people have called panpsychism. But it deserves a better test. So okay. I wrote all this up for Paul Gilster's Centauri Dreams blog, one of the best astronomy and astronautic blogs. And I was amazed four decades or more after the Uri Geller Great Randy controversy, these respectable, brilliant people were still insulting each other <laughs> on the blog under their hashtags. And, you know, it was remarkable. And all I was saying is I think it's time we reopen 
the tests and do some really serious good studies, and other people have suggested it also. Uh, so just to see if there is a weak telekinetic force, if there is one there, that might be what would cause the, the universe to self-organize. Okay, let's back up a little bit. There are two terms that come to mind when you talk about consciousness, okay? Um, I think we have to perhaps look at what the definition of consciousness is and um, another, another something else beyond that. Conscious, a garden variety definition of consciousness is self-awareness, okay? Now, that's being remade in a lot of ways today by the phys- physicists of consciousness and people such as yourself. Is that an adequate definition when we extend it to the stars? I'm not sure because one thing I did, I was asked to write a book about this called Starlight, Starlight, All Stars Conscious, published by Curtis Press. Mm, yeah. And my wife did the art for it. And I started looking into the different definitions of consciousness, and I just did it among the physicists because that's what I am, and there's no uniform, there's no uniform definition. And self-awareness, yeah, okay, self-awareness is one thing that a conscious organism might have. The, also thing, the other thing is volition. Um, what if you take an amoeba in a maze and it comes up to a branch point, it has to decide to go left or right. Is making the ability to make a decision, is that a bit of consciousness? Is that consciousness also? And I would say from the point of view of what I need in this, it, stars don't necessarily have to be self-aware, but they have to be, they would have to be to a certain extent volitional. It's like with the amoeba again. Are you familiar with the slime mold amoeba? Uh, yes, I've encountered them yeah. uh, here and there, yeah. Maybe I should, for the sake of the readers, I'll talk about what this is. These are garden variety protists spending most of their time in the ponds, and all of a sudden there's some strange signal, and these one-cell organisms get together, they build a slug-like structure, they wander through the forest, they come to a certain point, they climb a little bit, they erect the thing into a tower, and they shoot off some reproductive cells, some of which will land in other ponds. And to me, that is, you know, at a very low level, that is an application of, of consciousness. It's, it's probably not something that I can say, you know, I'm conscious, a grain of sand isn't conscious. It probably, it's a guy named Giulio Tonino who wrote a book called Phi, about basically integrated information theory. And he basically would say something like every molecule to some, a single molecule can make one or two decisions, can move in one or two different directions, maybe one one or two freedoms of motion. So that's a very low level of consciousness. But you get a lot of these guys together and you can have a change of state and organize it into a crystal and something like that. That's a higher order. And finally, you can move along to specialized structures composed of this material, like tubulins in cells, as Lynn Margolis said, uh, one of the greatest microbiologists of the 20th century, and of course, Roger Pet said Roger Penrose and Dr. Stuart Hameroff. And what you would say with this thing is, okay, a cell, an organic cell, has more consciousness. You put a lot of these together with neurons, and ultimately you build up something that's very self-aware like a human being. I know I'm self-aware, and I'm pretty sure other people are. When I look at my cats, they seem to be self-aware. When I look at flies or mosquitoes, I'm not sure. You know, it's like how do you, def- how do you define it? How do you test for self-awareness? Like and I don't know hive behavior, that sort of thing. Yeah, that type of thing. Okay, well, the the second term that comes to mind, I don't know if Ben wants to add to this, but the second term that comes to mind is non-locality. Any sort of of idea that we are not islands, and we're always harping on this in this show, that there is plenty of evidence that we are not totally self-contained units, uh, memory, imagination, etc., is probably in con- physics of consciousness is, is getting into this, and it gets into the paranormal and, and what uh, 
maybe uh, the cause of it and how we perceive it and how it works is non-locality. Things are not necessarily within inside uh, inside of us, and you seem to be getting into that uh, uh, in a in a new way, uh, in the sense of a consciousness field that, that may embrace the whole multiverse, if we if we can use the term. Uh, am I right? I think you're right, and it's a very interesting thing. This is what Harris Walker was talking about. With his theory of consciousness, you had a wave function of, say, an electron bouncing around in a potential well between two neurons, and like, in, like in, in, with many quantum phenomena, it could tunnel out to another part of the brain. And he reasoned, hey, if it could tunnel out to another part of my brain, maybe it could manifest itself in somebody else's brain. And this is probably one reason why the CIA started to fund this stuff in the mid-late 70s. Great book about it by David Kaiser at MIT called How the Hippies Saved Physics. It's a fabulous, wonderful book, very it's hysterical, too. It, it is. It's funny, yeah. About, he's, he's a great guy about how this whole thing developed. And then, okay, his basic validation experimental validation for this was the results with Uri Geller. He could never find somebody else who agreed with his theory that well. But then you come along with uh, Penrose and um, Hameroff, and their work deals with tubulins and um, quantum entanglement. And, of course, they have received, it, they were initially critiqued by uh, Max Tegmark, I believe is his name, who said you can't have quantum effects in turbulence because they're too hot. And they were, I mentioned in the book and elsewhere there were at least two experimental validations showing that Tegmark was wrong about this, that you can, that you can have uh, room temperature or higher temperature quantum effects in living, living systems. But anyway, when they talk about entanglement, basically they're talking about entanglement between or among tubulins in one brain, one, a couple of cells. But certainly, we now know that quantum entanglement can work over very large distances. So there is absolutely no reason why it couldn't be tied in to something outside of the brain. So that's another reason I would say we must be very open and there has to be very, very good experimental studies at this point, but replicable studies, um, with, extra, with, with, with a statistical analysis as well as we could do it of the alleged paranormal events. Okay. All right, we're going to take our bottom of the hour break, and then we're going to come back with Dr. Gregory Matloff on the fascinating subject of panpsychism. And you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful but a little bit chilly Blackstone Valley today. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Don Brunell inviting you to join me for ON Midday, weekdays from noon to 2, right here on ON 1240 Radio. We've got gold cuts, guests, and our daily super quiz. The Midday Show, right here on ON, local radio at its best. And welcome back to our show. It's Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240. And we're talking today with physicist Gregory Matloff. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. I think it's great, really fascinating. And uh, we're going to get back to, to him in a minute, but I wanted to remind you of some of the charities our show has adopted. Uh, our new website is still growing, and we're going to be putting uh, as soon as possible some reminders and links to these websites, I should say, to these charities, which include uh, several veterans' charities, uh, American and Canadian, as well as help for Haiti and some great stuff going on out in Los Angeles with Tony LeRae and the uh, Youth Mentoring Connection out there. So please check those out on our website. We'll mention them again in our announcement period. Now, uh, I wanted to give uh, Dr. Matloff a chance to talk about his books. However, Ben has a question first, and we have a question from a listener. So, Ben, go ahead. All right. So I, I have, I, I always have this, this, this question because we had Dr. Amika Swami on our, on our show uh, a few weeks back. And he was mentioning how the the materialistic science is essentially on on the outs. 
although the, the scientific community at large is is still very much materialistic. Um, how do you feel about the scientific establishment against you know the the whole idea of consciousness studies and and all that? Do you think it's it's changing? Like the the paradigm is shifting to from more of a materialistic point of view to uh, a, another? Or what say you? Okay, I I, I feel that. What is probably happening is there is a shift, it's very slow, and it's going to depend upon data coming in in the next few years. Um, There's a, for instance, in the case of stellar motions, there is a European space observatory called Gaia, which is now right now gathering data on about a billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy on their locations and their motions. If it turns out that Perengo's discontinuity is a a galactic-wide phenomenon, as I suspect it will, what this is going to do is demonstrate that the universe does self-organize. And self-organization is something that seems to recur at all levels. There's a guy named Stuart Kaufman, a biologist, who's talked about it at the biological level. You know, think about this. You have a human embryo that's developing. It starts as a cell. You've had the ovum and and the sperm have joined. And to form a adult human, I think you have to have 50 different divisions. But as it goes along, it begins to produce liver cells, kidney cells, blood cells. How do these all know? to go to the right place. Why doesn't your kidney start growing out of your eye or something like that? And this is lumped under the concept of self-organization. We're told that the genes tell you how to do it. Well, I think intuitively there's something else is happening. There is something that is favoring organization in the right way. And it does it at an extraordinary level of of accuracy. You have trillions of cells all of them down number of molecules thick, very, very small, almost at the level of quantum phenomenon. How come you don't have more mistakes? You don't. So something is going on that's quite fascinating. And I think, of course, if we do begin moving further and further away from some of the anomalistic things in astronomy, like dark matter, if we people continue looking for it and don't find it, uh, the realization may come about that the universe self-organizes at the higher level as well. There's a guy, Eric Yanch, who died in 1980, and he probably died of AIDS, wrote a book called The Self-Organizing Universe. And to me, it's one of the most brilliant books ever written because it talks about self-organization on many, many different levels. And I think, I think the scientific community is slowly moving in that direction. When okay. I talk to astronomers or physicists, maybe they're not ready to go public with it yet. You have to realize the reason changes go slow is because if there is a research professor who has a number of students working on PhD problems, he's not going to do anything to denigrate the work that his students or her students are doing. There has to be a great deal of respect for this. Mm-hmm. And if this person, if the student is involved in a very expensive test to search for dark matter, the research professor is not going to say anything against dark matter. So the scientific establishment does not change very quickly. But it is, it is, does, I think it is evolving. It is changing. Okay. Well, that's good. Um, why don't we talk, before we proceed, I want to get into notions of life and God and things of this kind, but uh, Doctor, if you could tell us about your books, your website, where people can get them, and uh, etc. Okay, it's gregmountloss.com, and that's the website. Uh, I have many books out, I think about 12 now. The first one was the Starflight Handbook. With most of my books, my wife C. Bangs did the chapter Front Feast Art. Uh, she also shows at a New York gallery called Central Booking Art Space NYC on Ludlow Street in the Lower East Side. And, um, okay, we did the Starflight Handbook, then we did a couple of, that was for Wiley, a couple of other astronomy books for Wiley, uh, for both adults and children. 
And then when I began consulting for NASA on solar sails around 1999 at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, I got tired going to the library every time I needed an equation. So I took a lot of the technical details on deep space travel and put it in a book called Deep Space Probes. And with folks at NASA, particularly Les Johnson at NASA Marshall, uh, C and I did harvesting, uh, harvesting space for a greener earth. That's one book. Another book, Living Off the Land in Space. And I did a solar sail book, one of the several good solar sail books out with Les Johnson and, Giov and um, Giovanni Volpetti, an Italian solar sail scientist. And did a couple of scientists, of artist scientist books with C. And then got involved, of course, in doing the book we've been talking about, which is uh, Starlight, Starbright, Our Stars Conscious, which I try to look at the whole problem from many different angles. I look at the uh, competing theories. I talk about having to, the, the efforts people have made to try to define consciousness, the various theories of it. And I also go back to shamanic times, because one thing I learned is there's nothing ever new. We just look at it from a different perspective. Yeah, we the wanted to get into that. It's amazing. Uh, one person who we, I, we interviewed for this, and we talk about her in the book, it's, she's an artist, and she and C knew her. Her name is, um, well, she goes by the, by the name Mama Donna, and she's the official shaman of New York City. Not many people know that New York City has an official shaman. Yeah. And I wanted to find out what the ancient, from what we know, really ancient people thought about this, and apparently they, the concept was that the entire universe was conscious at mm -hmm. one level or another. Yeah. And it just goes into mythology where you have various... Um, well, you're a mortal and immortal being who are thrust up into the sky. You have the sun god, of course, the moon goddess, the Pleiades, the seven sisters, the lion, the hunter, and so on. So this is an ancient concept, and it might be slowly reviving. And I really have a lot, to, I really have to thank Olaf Stapledon for putting me in that direction, because he had a lot to do with it. Okay, great. Let's uh, let's get to a question from uh, our faithful listener Phil in Orange, Massachusetts. Ben, if you would do the honors. Okie doke. <coughs> Phil writes to us. I don't know if this question is an appropriate one to ask your guest, but here it goes. Uh, it's easy to believe that biological systems like trees or even supposedly inert materials like rocks are uh, animated, or sorry, animate, quote unquote, at a quantum level. And uh, special cameras show that water seems to have an energy which changes in response to the chemicals and materials uh, which might be or uh, may have been dissolved in it. But what are what about system? Or sorry, I'm sorry, synthetic materials such as uh, pseudo stone services used in kitchen counters. Uh, does your guest believe that even um, engineered materials can have some sort of animate energy? Interesting question. It's a fascinating question, and the way I'm going to answer it is to refer to a book I recently read, and because it's not it's something that's far from my field of expertise, but there is a young architect in the United Kingdom. Her name is Rachel Armstrong, and she wrote a book called Star Arcs, and she was looking at interstellar travel, basically world ships, big, gigantic spacecraft, not from the point of view of physics or biology or engineering, but from the point of view of architecture. And what she points out is there are a certain number of new materials coming out which mimic life. In fact, you might actually have to, def have to define that they are alive. So it is a fascinating concept. And also, um, back to astrophysics again, one person who I've worked with a little in interstellar research put me in touch with a Belgian philosopher, natural philosopher, a guy named Clement Vidal, V-I-D-A-L. And what Clement has done is he's looked at a certain class of double stars, parasitic double stars, in which the two sort of live off each other. 
if they're close enough to exchange matter and so on. And what he's been able to demonstrate, and he got this paper out into Acta Astronautica, which is pretty good. He's written a book about it, too. And what he did is he demonstrates that these types, this type of star satisfies 19 of the 20 requirements for life, the natural, the natu- for living systems that natural philosophers and biologists work with. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of mind-blowing also. <clears throat> so I would, I, I would answer the question to say, yeah, some of these synthetic materials, um, another one that's been pointed out is the, the Bose-Einstein condensate. If you take helium-3, which is a low-mass isotope of helium, you cool it down to a very low temperature, very close to zero absolute, it starts to act like all the molecules in it are in the same quantum state. And one thing that that people have speculated about is this might be conscious itself. In fact, in one of their their books on on consciousness, Penrose and Hameroff mention that neutron stars are composed of this material, and therefore they may be conscious also. And um, one of the respondents, I forget the person's name, in the Centauri Dreams blog said, one experiment that a real... A real uh, paranormal research program might consider is to set up a vat of this material and have people look at it and basically concentrate and see how well they are at getting the helium-3 to climb the walls. Like, Hmm. can you make it climb one centimeter repeatedly, two centimeters, three, or so on? Just to see if there is some validity to this, yeah, and it would be a fascinating experiment. It would. Uh, there are so many things to this. Uh, we were going to ask about uh, a number of the things you've already brought up, Doctor. Uh, one of the things that uh, I might want to just point out regarding synthetic materials, as as uh, the, our listener Phil brings up, uh, is that ultimately. Isn't it so that all materials, whether we have manipulated them or not, or made new alloy, alloys or synthetics or whatever, everything ultimately comes from the stars? Yeah, it all comes from the stars, and if it is composed of molecules and, con- and the proto-consciousness field comes in through molecules, then a synthetic material can be conscious as well as a natural material. Okay. Now, theology is much is more my field, certainly, than yours, but uh, what, uh, in, one has noticed that really since the 60s, physicists have been talking about God in very, very broad terms. They're certainly not, not what I learned in the seminary or what you're going to hear in the church or synagogue or wherever. Um, and, and people like, like uh, Professor, Professor Gaswami, for example, a renowned physicist, but marches to his own drummer, a frequent guest on the show, um, will talk about God as well. Uh, what say you on, on, is it just a term or, or, or are we getting to a, a sort of notion of, of a, of a theological uh, idea here in talking about uh, mass consciousness or, or some of the things we've been mentioning as far as uh, a consciousness field in the universe or this sort of thing or the volition and what, what do you think about that? Okay, I think from my point of view, not being a philosopher or a theologian, but having met some of them at one of the, I went in April 19, I'm going to say April 2016 to the Science of Consciousness conference at University of Arizona, and I met people like David Chalmer and and mm. also Deepak Chopra, and I think what we're talking about is not the type of God that you have in most religions. It's not a personal God, but it might be a God sort of basically saying that divinity is imminent in the universe. This is sort of what Einstein felt. Einstein was a follower of he was a follower of Spinoza, who mm-hmm. was one of the people who developed uh, panpsychism. I'm sorry, not panpsychism, pantheism, yes. which comes because before panpsychism. Now, the reason for the difference between pantheism and panpsychism, I think, is what is going on in astrid cosmology today. That if you know, there were two basic ways of looking at the fact that we are here. Uh, because there are so many 
universal constants that had to be just right, uh, that the odds of us evolving um, by random are very, very remote. So there are two ways of approaching this. One is the multiverse and saying that there's a gazillion universes. Most of them are dead. We live in the good one, the Goldilocks universe. And, that, and the other one is to say the anthropic principle, the cosmological anthropic principle, saying there was a designer. And unfortunately, we have no way to, dis- to determine between the two of them. And this is a crisis. I was at a conference with Paul Davies, a very famous cosmologist, and who yeah. also I would call him a theological philosopher, a couple, a couple of years ago. And it occurred to me as we were talking that, as he was talking, I spoke with him about this afterwards, that if you apply Oakham's razor to this thing, and Oakham basically said around the year 1300, I forget the exact dates, that if you have a choice of two hypotheses to explain the same phenomenon, you choose the simplest one. So I would say, I told him, Oakham would say, go with, the anthropic principle with the designer mm-hmm. and he laughed and he said well you're correct and that's exactly what he'd say but there are two philosophical pillars that modern science and post-renaissance civilization rest on Oakham is one Copernicus is the other and Copernicus said there's no such thing as a preferred reference frame so he went so Paul went up to a wall pointed at it and said that little bit of universal vacuum stabilized and became the universe. What about that one? Or that one? Or that one? And all I could do was laugh because it is a philosophical crisis and because of it we can't prove or disprove religious concepts. One can be an atheist, an agnostic, or a believer and they can scream at each other all the time (laughs) but you (laughs) you can't end the argument. You can't find a definite proof. It's just beyond our, and maybe it may always be beyond our can, I don't know. Yeah. But if it, if it turns out that consciousness permeates the, permeates the universe as a whole, this is probably a step in the direction of something like pantheism. Sure, sure. And I'm thinking of the question that we posed in the title of this show, Is Everything Alive? In the, the final few minutes here, Doctor, could you, can we answer that question? And if so, how would you Begin to approach an answer to that question. 25 words or less, please. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, I think it depends upon the scale, the time scales involved. When I look at a rock, it doesn't seem to be evolving. It doesn't seem to be doing anything. But if I leave that rock out in the rain, it will change. It will will interact with with its environment. So if that rock is alive, it works at a different temporal scale than we do. The same is true for a star. In in a star, um, one human lifetime is about equal to a second of the star's life, at least a sun-like star's life. So, you know, when we look at a star and try to decide is that star alive, it's like we are mayflies. Imagine a mayfly with a critic with a critic ham flying through Grand Central Station in Manhattan and photographing the people who seem to be completely still from its point of view and saying, Are they volitional? Are they alive or what have you? Hmm. And from its point of view, because its attention span is temporally a lot more limited than ours, hmm. it wouldn't see any change. So I think a lot has to do with that. There's also been some, there's been recently a white paper written to the astrobiology community by people like Andrew Simeon at SETI, Claudio Maconi in an Italian SETI. And what they basically have been saying is we have to really broaden our definitions of life because we not be we may not be able to recognize or define what life is. We can define life within certain parameters, but but our definitions are very limited. If I if I if somebody put me down under the oceans of Europa or on the surface of Titan, there might be life forms there, but would I even recognize them as brothers or sisters? I don't know. Precisely. 
Well, we're always asking, we're looking for life as we know it, and we often chuckle and say, what about life as we don't know it? And we have astronomers on the show, and they seem to say the same thing. Mm. Yeah, I think I think people are becoming a little more, a little less hubristic, a little more humble about it, to say, to realize we know very, very, very little. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. we, for instance, there are constantly little microscopic structures and bigger structures found on Mars, and we can't, just recently there was some little, it looked like little worm-like things that the Curiosity rover had photographed, and is it life, or is it some type of geology, or is it two the same at that level? I don't know, and nobody does. That's true. Well, it seems that human chauvinism is often the uh, the worst enemy of knowledge. Mm. Exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. All right, Doctor, give us your uh, website one more time. and um... Okay, it's gregmountloff.com. And, uh, you can, of course, you can look me up online, and, and the website is listed there, Gregory Matloff or Greg Matloff. Uh, a number of my papers are also available. You can check me on Google Scholar, and some of them are there that, that you, can, uh, you can download. And okay. if you have any questions, um, the email address, gregmat0, G-R-E-G-M-A-T, and then you have the number zero at AOL.com. I prefer that you would send it to me there rather than at the university email. And I would be happy to respond. Okay, very good. Well, I think that we've um, opened a, uh, I don't know, not Pandora's box, but perhaps in a positive <laughs> sense. Let's call it Perengo's box. Let's go. Okay, very good. <laughs> okay. And uh, I think further shows are, are required as we go. Well, we'll be in touch off the air. Thank you very Indeed. much. Okay, you're quite welcome. It was a lot of fun. Great. And nice to meet you both. Okay. okay. Nice to meet you All also. Right. Have a good day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, Ben, what's cooking? We've got plenty cooking. Uh, first off, uh, in a little less than two weeks, uh, January 27th, our first public appearance of this year will take place uh, at a uh, charity event at Cottage by the Sea. I'm sorry, Cottage by the Bay. Yeah, you want to uh, say Dover. sea up there. Yeah. I do want to say sea. Yeah. <laughs> Up in Dover, uh, New Hampshire, because I keep thinking Manchester by the sea. That's that's why. Right. Uh, to benefit the uh, Miss Portsmouth Area Scholarship Program, and that's uh, 5 to 8 p.m., and the uh, tickets are $20 per person, uh, and you will get not only us, but a nice buffet dinner, and our subject will be Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong. Or is everything you know. Or is everything you know is wrong. You can get your, your tickets uh, through the link on our main website. That's BehindTheParanormal.com. All right, now on Saturday, February 17th, from 1 to 4 p.m., you can meet us at the uh, 2018 Book Lovers and Authors Expo at the Cumberland Public Library, 1464 Diamond Hill Road, Cumberland, Rhode Island. Uh, there will be many other authors there as well. I, I understand there are going to be like 50 authors. Oh, yeah. Wow. And it's a really fun event in a great venue. It's going to be, I believe, in that room where, where we've, we've spoken many times and where we had the release Oh yeah! Event for behind the paranormal, everything you know is wrong in 2016. Cool. Uh, Aaron Kutu, a terrific fellow down there, is uh, uh, running this. Anyway, you can call 401-333-2552 for information. And uh, for those of you who follow us online, we'll note that our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, has been redesigned and is uh, more interactive, and we plan on making more changes and upgrades, but we've only just made a start. A lot of people say they enjoy all the, the all the slideshows. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> All right. Anyway, gift-giving time is never over. It's always somebody's birthday or anniversary, so please consider autographed copies of our books for that special weird person in your life. Uh, they're cheap and easy to wrap. That's the books, not the people, and they are widely available. But if you order them online at either of our two websites, BehindTheParanormal.com or NewEnglandGhosts.com, we'd be very happy to autograph them for you and send them out as soon as possible. And uh, books include the uh, first two in our Behind the Paranormal series, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, published last year, available in stores. I should say published 2016. Oh, I'm sorry, published yeah, in 2016. Time, time flies when you're having fun, Ben. Yeah, I, I suppose it's it's been fun. Uh, then there's Behind the Paranormal 2, uh, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard Of, currently available online uh, uh, for various retailers, including Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle as well. Also available are books I wrote myself in Days of Yore, Faces at the Window, 1998, 
Footsteps in the Attic 2002, about my cases from the 1970s and 80s, along with Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny from 2006, uh, with a few more cases and a broad look at what the paranormal might really mean. Now, having nothing whatsoever to do with any of that is another book that I helped write, well, I wrote most of it anyway, uh, behind the, uh, I should say, Rhode Island, A Genial History, uh, for any unrepentant history buff that was written with my, my dear friend, the late great historian and TV reporter Glenn Laxton, uh, that deals with some of the more bizarre characters and incidents, incidents in the life of this unique little state. And the book, to my surprise, is used in several Rhode Island school districts. So whether you live in Rhode Island or not, you might find that book interesting. Uh, those are all available at our online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. And just to round it off, you can get books that feature us, or one of us at least, uh, but we did not write them via links at our online bookstore. And uh, these books include The World's Most Haunted House, The True Story of uh, the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street, and The Haunted House Diaries, The True Story of a Quiet Connecticut Town in the Center of a Paranormal Mystery, both by William J. Hall. And not to belabor the book point, but there are some that I wrote uh, some of and that we at least appear in, but you'd never know it by their wild and crazy cover designs. These include The Bell Witch Project, UFO Repeaters, and Beyond Amityville, The Lore of the Poltergeist, published by Global Communications, and our good friend and sometime co-host, Timothy Green Beckley, who's going to be coming up from New York as soon as he's feeling a little better, uh, just as he did last time, just to be here oh, at nice. OLNB in the studio, that, that's a lot of fun. So shock your kids, fool your teachers, and amaze Stanton Friedman by visiting the online bookshop at BehindTheParanormal.com or NewEnglandGhosts.com. And that's not the only reason to visit uh, those jarring websites. Uh, there are uh, also uh, tons and tons of free recorded shows uh, from our uh, years on ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio is over 730, in fact, along with uh, special shows and podcasts. And if you dare, check out our YouTube channel that's Behind the Paranormal uh, with Paul and Ben Eno on there. We do case files and such, and we are currently in the works for some new projects, which hopefully we will get to uh, start very soon once it is not frigid outside. And <laughs> Right, and the most recent one was about the Bridgeport case of 1974. That, that, that's uh, attracting a lot of attention lately for some reason. I guess people are talking about it now, even though it was so long ago. Uh, but being one of the few surviving eyewitnesses to that case, uh, there, I'm getting a lot of questions about it, and we did do uh, a YouTube presentation on that, which is our newest one, and uh, you can check that out on a YouTube channel uh, behind the paranormal. So, so please do that. And as Ben said, we got some exciting stuff coming now. Indeed. Um, also on the website, you'll find direct links to a lot of the charities uh, Ben and I have adopted, including usacares.org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, youthmentoring.org, uh, doing great stuff out there, and uh, helpforhaiti.com, Help for Haiti's offer orphans as well, uh, big charity we support. So, uh, what do we got coming up next week, Ben? So next Sunday, January 21st, we will bring you uh, one of our coveted open line shows with popular guest co-host Shane Searway, and he'll be back with us to help answer our mounds and mounds of questions from uh, listeners all from all areas of the paranormal. Might not be as cerebral as the last two shows, but uh, send, in, send in your stuff behind the, to Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. We leave you this afternoon with a thought from 19th century French novelist uh, Gustave Flaubert. Be steady and well-ordered in your life so that you can be fierce and original in your work. And uh, again, I want to thank our guest today and Ben uh, for, I think, a really good show, Dr. Gregory Matloff. Check it out, gregmatloff.com. Anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.